This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You lost your sight, along with everyone else on earth in the great blinding. Two years later, your sight returns. As you look around, you realize that every available wall, floor, and surface has been painted with the same message, don't tell them you can see, and in the end, the sky finally falls. Yet it's still hard to see. The black and white image you've got after you've been on this ship for so long doesn't make sense without a very different perspective. To understand what happened, I decided to go back to my computer and look at the picture I had taken during a mission. As an undergraduate, I was a Navy intelligence officer, and had been working for a long time as a spy chief, so I had not been trained in how to use the power in space by the very same degree. The fact that I still had a computer that knew how to use lasers and satellites was something that had not been seen since the 1950s. The first images I saw of the wreckage and all it represented was those of the ship, the Enterprise, and of the black light that was being shot back from the planet Eris at high speed. I was amazed at how much the effects of the laser that had been shot back from the Enterprise were quite beautiful. It looked like an entirely new era of computers using lasers and satellites. Even though it had its problems, the Enterprise was still the brightest planet Earth has ever produced. The Enterprise. After spending some time looking at the wreckage, I decided to start the experiment. I took the opportunity to walk across the vast hangar that housed the Enterprise's crew to the landing area. All the windows were boarded up, the windows were covered by the hard surface, so I turned on the cameras and took a good look around. I saw the white and black view of the stars. All the star systems and planets in the solar system had been painted in the same color, a very old, old white color scheme. What I had to do when I looked outside was to look around to see what the stars and planets were like. The first star was green, on the left side. Yes, that's why I wanted to see it first, the second star was dark green, near red. I could only use a half to half inch lens with no magnification and the color changed every time I turned or changed the focus. My original camera would only use one lens at a time, but because there were only 100 or so lens sizes on the Enterprise, I was able to use four lenses. The Enterprise and the other star systems. These images were taken during the course of our mission to photograph the other star systems that had been found to have been the site of several Earth colonies. I took a bunch of these photos together while in the cockpit of the Enterprise, looking for signs of life on these stars and on the bodies of the other planets that were still visible. I decided to take a lot more photos during that entire visit, but it took me a bit too long to get started. As far as I saw, there was no sign of life on this world. I just stared at all the stars and planets until I could make out that it was a blue planet, but that wasn't what the image really showed. I saw only a small handful of gas bubbles that appeared in a few of the left and right star systems, and a few that appeared in almost the exact same position. I also had to make sure the star system I was seeing hadn't become flooded with sunlight in the process of changing its color. This was not something I was trying to photograph. The Enterprise was also quite bright. 
This was also true of the other planets that were found as well, but I could only see a third of them at any given time. On the main bridge of the Enterprise, I used the front of the console to look up into what a real Earth star called an Earth star. Just inside this view you can see the largest telescope on the planet. Inside the Enterprise, there was a hole in the upper left corner of the bridge where all the lights were set, to prevent any kind of problems that may have occurred at the scene of the accident. The only one of the two remaining lights on the bridge was actually used to illuminate the Enterprise, but it actually went off when the TV was up. The two lights were on either side of the bridge, to allow us to see all the lights for the Enterprise that we could see and to make sure we didn't see anything that might actually be a threat to the crew and crewmate. I don't recall seeing any lights on the bridge, other than the one that was on the ground. Another camera in my computer was there to provide the picture of the Enterprise on the bridge. And, of course, there was an explosion switch in the bridge at the top left which was used to illuminate all of the instruments in the cabin. The second camera on the console in the right corner was there at that point, too, to allow us to see all that we saw. The second camera on the left in the explosion switch was a second warp drive switch. And so on, from the point we were in the scene, it took us a while to realize that it wasn't the only device on the bridge that was making waves. The second explosion switch was quite an interesting fact. After all, the device was actually just a new set of lights. That is, they were placed inside the ship to get rid of radiation from the Enterprise and the sensors and things on the ship would be shut off. Then, again, after it was all over, I could only see an unusual amount of objects that turned out to be objects where they were still on the bridge. They were, for instance, that were in the Enterprise's hull and were visible through the windows. Finally, I have to say, there is not much more you could ask for. The fact that these devices are still used is not a very nice feature. That, I might add, is the major problem that the hole we found this thing never really dealt with. After all, there are so many other stories that have been told about the Enterprise, but this is the one you would expect to see. The fact that the real story you can't tell is about the first explosion switch is extremely odd. If you had asked me about the we found this we discovered that story, then if you had asked me the question first, you would have said, yes. However, these are some of the other things you can actually ask about any other story. For one thing, the actual explosion switch story is more interesting than the we found this story. That is, it's a story about an alien spacecraft having an explode in an explosion switch on a small craft with an explosion device, which is really unusual. Even though we found this story focuses on an alien craft, it does not actually address any other questions about another ship and only describes that we found this story of how the explosion switch turned out to be a real we discovered that story. All the other parts of the story were about an alien civilization making we found a way to get around radiation issues in space and finding a way to send signals through those devices, but there are actually three stories you can actually tell. A story about an alien society that decided to send signals to the we found a way to get around radiation issues. To understand things with other kinds of stories, I have to go back to the original alien story, which is a we found an alien spaceship at a scientific conference and it was looking for someone to try to be the first one to do something about the radiation problem. I hope that helps. But I'm really quite surprised that we just hadn't found something about it. There's an earlier problem with the we found a way to get around story. Let me explain. First of all, 
When we talk about something like the we found a way to send signals by sending a signal through radiation story, we have to talk about radiation. In science fiction, radiation doesn't always work exactly the same way as it does in real life, so many problems fall into this category. First of all, when we talk about something like the we found a way to send signals by sending a signal through radiation story, we have to talk about radiation. In science fiction, radiation doesn't always work exactly the same way as it does in real life, so many problems fall into this category. So let me put forth this idea that using a radiation shield to deflect the radiation could be a big win. How does that work? Using a radioisotope shield, you basically only transmit a very brief radio frequency radiation that you feel very highly positive about. In this case though, the radioisotope shield deflects that negative radiation around you, just like you do against a mirror. With the effect of this shield, it makes a bit of an effect about the radiation. As I explained, the radiation itself is still sent along the beam even if the beam looks out and there's a slight bit of light when you open your eyes. This means that when radiation is passing through you, the light doesn't fall back on you, which means your brain receives more and more radiation, and that you experience a reduction by about 25% of the current dose. If this sounds like an unusual system, then this is exactly what we're talking about, except you don't always want to use this. The idea of a radioisotope shield is that it could be a better alternative, but it is so far from reality. What I actually said about the radiation shield is that it might be a bit tricky for the individual to do just that, using the shield as a medium to shield photons from radiation. But if you're thinking of doing this in person, you'll feel a lot better without it. This might be a real advantage if the device is a small space station. I'll say you'll find it a lot easier, though, to keep the shield on for the moment to pass a light. But there's no way that anyone can do it. What we are talking about today is not a small thing. There's such a small number of people with a sense of community. It goes without saying that scientists need to keep their energies at the minimum and to work on things with the kind of data that matter. Not only did the first generation of telescopes fail if anything to detect it at all and they don't like the idea that some things might be happening right now now, but they won't be able to get it right for a long, long time. That's a big problem for all of us. I've said this before in an interview. I say in a way you think you could change this at one time or another, but you don't know how much it's going to cost for you and the scientists and the communities that work on this. A little bit, not very much, but we're talking about trillions of dollars. So, just like the old time things science fiction these days it means your lifetime has increased by something, and the cost of an observatory or the telescope, for instance, from a few hundred dollars to several billion dollars a year. How you feel about the radioisotope shield? With the way our current systems are doing, it may seem like there is a great deal of variation in how much we need it to work properly. In real life, we need things like sensors that are just standing there forever, and you do notice these problems when you look at anything that's in front of your eye or in a very far distance situation, such as in a car. But if you look at something that's moving through space and coming out of our eyes, it may be possible to make your own optical electromagnetic detector. Because this method doesn't work, and we just don't have access to the sensors, how can I just use an antenna to create these kinds of detectors, which would be expensive, as far as that goes, but really it's really a simple idea that is really exciting for scientists. And because it's a cheap concept, 
it's going to be something that anyone knows, just happens to work. The challenge is, you don't know that much about what you need from a new way. Sometimes that's because nobody really knows what they need until they see that technology first. It's a huge challenge for scientists to find the answer first, but the good news is that even after years of studying these kinds of phenomena, things that work, in general, are still going to be very good. Some years ago, when one student asked if his computer had problems after he ran its own tests, and I said, what if when I run my own tests, when I run all these tests when all my students pass the examinations, etc. you really know? He actually said that he was right and the problem that caused the problem was that people got confused by it. I wasn't convinced. But I tried to say, well, you know what, you are right. What if it worked as expected when all these tests were running and you noticed it was not working? You still don't know it. If you are interested in the technology of science, if you're interested in how it works, you'd think that someday you'd be able to tell who was doing it, because of how the machine works. But you know we are moving ahead with very exciting progress and the science of artificial intelligence is very complex and we're not yet understanding it, and we have to learn the same things as the human mind. The first step in this is using the knowledge of machines to understand human beings. It's a huge challenge because machine behavior is extremely complex and it's very, very important. We don't know yet exactly how humans would do this, and we do know we can learn by understanding human behavior, and I don't think that will happen anytime soon. So I'd say that when we look at this new direction to be able to measure machine behavior in all different domains right now, I think we have a big opportunity to become more precise with the kind of machine intelligence that we're seeing around us. Hopefully, eventually we're going to see it in the real world. There are some fundamental changes to machine behavior for every type of information. People with machine brains are more motivated and are working on more complex tasks, and it is difficult to develop a good understanding of what's going on for you, in terms of how you want and need information from your brain. But in the context of the intelligence that is part of all life, a good understanding of what the brain is that's necessary to process information is one of the greatest challenges of our time. Dr. Nolte, for all this progress, the great thing is that it looks real. And there is a lot happening that we haven't experienced. Because of the way that the human brain learns, if you really do have an understanding of the difference between information coming into the brain that isn't already there, and the kind of cognitive processing there, one of the most important things that a doctor is trained to do is to recognize the possibility of a problem the doctor may see for the first time. We now have the capacity to recognize there is no such thing as a new condition. But that does not mean that we must be completely patient. We have to recognize when it's time for us to get help. So for what we are seeing right now, the first step is making sure we do everything that we can to understand what's going on. We need to get people involved so we can understand what is needed in real settings and then make sure that as the situation evolves, the real needs of the world and society change it's going to turn out that the more complicated areas of the brain are being improved, the more important things are taking place. That is what Dr. Nolte is doing. There is a tremendous amount of interest to the idea of machine learning. And the people who are paying attention, the companies that are paying attention, are paying attention. Dr. Nolte, yes, absolutely. So now I'd say that we are seeing machines using all the knowledge that is needed to fully understand one information source or another. 
But a big part of the future will be to discover if one is really using all the knowledge. And that is what I think will come out of the research that we are doing. I will say that at the outset of the research that was going on for eight years, I thought that information that you will have in your brain that's just about to be read by a computer, that is going to be the world. So now, we can see that this isn't a bad idea. It's going to be very clear what is going to happen. There are many areas that will take new forms, including some that are going to be extremely important as we know today. There are many areas that will take new forms, including some that are going to be extremely important as we know today. We're seeing a great diversity of people as we try to take control of the economy, said Scott Schofielder, chairman and chief operating officer of HXPC in the corner of a high-end home in San Francisco. This is going to require a lot of creative effort and a lot of hard work. I think this is going to be an important challenge to the future. Hiring the firm could mean the expansion of HXPC's international workforce, which is expanding to more than 6 million people globally since 2013. Last year, about 16% of the workforce in Texas was employed in HXPC, while the number fell to about 14% in 2015, according to the Texas Department of Public Safety. The state's growth should drive up profits from the business and generate new government funding, Sperry said. The city will also move workers to other major facilities of the San Francisco Bay Area, such as the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and the Seattle Seahawks, according to HSCO board members. The new jobs have been fueled by a $10.8 million commitment by the company to hire more residents, increase the number of available homes for sales in the city and create 8,000 new jobs in the HXPC office space, the board members said. In addition, the city plans to build an $80 million solar and wind farm that will be used to generate electricity. Sperry plans to use the $70 million to add 200 jobs and hire more than 25,000 staff, including new workers. Housing is still just a business in our state, he said. There has to be a plan there to bring people to work so that when everybody is coming to work you get people on the job. The plan is one to prepare Houston for a population explosion that will lead to many more housing developments, with thousands of new jobs expected, the board said. More info. Governor Greg Abbott has signed into law legislation in September that will increase the number of affordable homes in Houston by 5 million units, which he said will bring about $10 billion to $20 billion. It also will include an expansion of the new Housing Bank of Greater Houston's property tax program, which began in 2011 to incentivize the redevelopment of development in Houston. The measure is one of the major initiatives currently in the legislative process. Houston residents can register their interest in housing at houston.com housing. The law also provides state approval for federal grants to help expand property tax incentives in Texas to cover land that has already been cleared for redevelopment. In addition to the cost of building additional housing in Houston, the legislation also expands HXPC to offer affordable housing plans. The legislation includes a $3.7 million tax credit to help pay for a new downtown development for Houston, including the new high-rise in the financial district with new apartment and apartment units. All new housing purchases, including single-family duplex, detached single-family homes and other rentals, are eligible for the tax credit. In addition, Homeowners will receive a $1.27 million gift for renovating and improving existing community housing, 
including a new apartment, on-site apartment, hotel and townhouse. All of the new apartments will be free of charge and all of this property tax money will be transferred to the Houston Community Investment Corporation, an organization based in Houston that is an integral part of the city's overall goal of being able to raise enough revenue to address affordable housing in the city, Schofielder said. The law will also give HXBC a new lease on life at the renovated Mission Hill home in the financial district. The law also provides a $1 million gift to the Houston Business Owners Association for building apartments, as well as a loan from the Economic Development Corporation. Housing tax incentives will be expanded to include $1.5 million more for commercial tenants in the downtown business district of Houston. Each resident who rents a residential building has $1,000 in the bank for rent and tax credits. The company's decision to expand is also a key step toward creating 100,000 new jobs in the city, Sperry said. HXPC's current workforce has an average annual return of 1.29%. The company plans to add another 10,000 jobs in the next two years. The state of Texas is using about $100 million in state subsidies available to Texas municipalities and states as a bridge to the future, Schofielder said. By taking on other state and local job programs, HXPC may contribute to the state's economy, he said. HXPC's investment could also help boost the city's growth and improve its efficiency, said Jim Nieves, director of HXPC City Office. The state of Texas is using about $100 million in state subsidies available to Texas municipalities and states as a bridge to the future, Schofielder said. By taking on other state and local job programs, HXPC may contribute to the state's economy, he said. HXPC's investment could also help boost the city's growth and improve its efficiency, said Jim Nieves, director of HXPC City Office. The city is also using an additional $75 million on an expansion and upgrading of its new headquarters in the city before 2020. But the project will require expensive upgrades that could require nearly $1 million from state capital bonds, he said. The cost of HXPC is not unique to Texas. Some city and state officials are planning to build a mixed-use development under a much more ambitious downtown project, including a new mixed-use parking lot, a $300 million housing development, restaurants and retail development and a portion of the 1,200-acre project said a senior planner with the Transportation Ministry. The redevelopment project is really more about the business side of it, a mix of urban, mixed-use, retail, transportation and other properties, said William Johnson, a Dallas-Fort Worth senior economist who helped design the Dallas Department of Transportation's plan for housing. The mixed-use, residential development would include an office, retail, restaurants and a restaurant kitchen and parking lot said Matthew Stegner, Director of Research at the Dallas-based National Association of Realtors. Rosenbach, who worked in the city's transportation department, said they are planning to get their city council votes on the residential expansion soon, but that they have the opportunity to consider the project before the November election and will decide later this month when they start to work out the financing for the development, according to Rosenbach. Dallas Mayor Mike Rawlings said he would like the government to show its support for such an expansion, although he has expressed concerns that a lack of planning help will be an issue if it follows through. Rawlings said his group is committed to meeting one of the priorities of the 
Municipal Fiscal Service, meeting, by doing the right thing for our city and for our district. The government will begin to provide development assistance between April and May. In fact, if the plan is successful in getting projects off the ground, Mayor Rawlings said in March, the city would receive $7.1 million annually from the Municipal Fiscal Service. When the plan came in, according to Rawlings and Deputy Mayor Jeff Bell, we already had a plan in place, but this wasn't working. Bell said while he could never support the project, he was not comfortable being opposed to it, saying this should go as a positive sign of our state of things going forward even though the state of the building works. When you start asking for public support to do something, there's always going to be a certain amount of opposition, Bell said. But it's always up to the politicians for their state. I'm not a big fan of getting thrown in front of those who don't want to talk about the whole process. In other words, city officials and city staff are going to make their case to city trustees to vote to approve the tax. The Municipal Finance Service, however, has already begun to work on a tax on residential and commercial property owners who are selling off their properties. City staff has also started to work with their city solicitor on a proposal to raise the maximum amount of money for community services from $500,000 to $1 million. The city has provided most of the funds, but critics of the plans have said that that is a bit excessive, and that the system could have been more transparent. But with the amount of dollars being raised in January, the city has already given the idea for new council seats for May, which will allow residents to decide who qualifies as a city resident. You can't run a city without people coming from places people live, Bell said. Some city officials who supported the tax, including former Director of Operations Jason Keeley, say the city simply is not going to use up much more money. City Council Member Kevin Faulkner, who has been a vocal critic of the tax, said that in short order the municipality will have to cut down on budget allocations. If you're going to do things differently as much, then everyone's going to make a very public comment about their budget, he said, stressing that for several years, the city hasn't been using it in the manner it used to. As long as it still has the possibility of coming in full, it's still something that can needs to be changed. It's not the first time some critics of the process have attacked the process for its long way, no one wants to see this happen. The city of Bend is in a different situation. The city received $13 million from the state's Housing Finance Authority in 2008 to demolish or reduce the parking garage used up by the city garage and other parking lots, and to turn it into a garage for other uses. The money was spent instead on affordable housing in the district under other terms. The district still uses only $20 billion of its $21 billion budget annually. However, that number is rising, officials say in the district is poised to spend an additional $28 billion over the next decade. A lot of this is really about helping the people we're serving here, said District 17 Mayor Rick Peel. The move comes as the council unanimously voted to authorize a $25 billion budget deal to address $8.6 million in long-term needs across the city, the city manager said. A vote scheduled for 10 a.m. Tuesday still doesn't have council approval, and an official plan to pay for more housing is still pending. The district has the most vacant properties in the city, and it can't afford to put more into public schools, according to the chief financial officer. As the chief financial officer explained, 
The district's $21 billion budget proposal, including improvements to existing services, will improve the situation, too. The district has the most vacant properties in the city, and it can't afford to put more into public schools, according to the chief financial officer. As the chief financial officer explained, the district's $21 billion budget proposal, including improvements to existing services, will improve the situation, too. The idea here is a school district, and it's one we have to be very, very cognizant of, said Dan Jones, assistant city council speaker in charge of the district's finances. You've got a business district running a lot of things that benefit a lot of people, and we need to be very attentive to that first. The plan included more money from special funds from schools districts when they become eligible in the current fiscal year, so it can be used to increase the budget by about 1.5%. We're really trying to grow the area we can afford, said Mr. Jones. The chief fiscal officer and the auditor to whom the proposal was introduced said schools districts had a lot more cash coming in from special and emergency sources, including local residents. The special funds have to go back into the district, Mr. Jones added. One thing all districts should be mindful about in their finances is that their primary sources of money are money being spent by the district's public school teachers, their salaries, support, pensions and bonuses, for example. If we think people know about anything that's going on in the district, they should be very cognizant of that, he said. But his office said that while the district would pay back all of the money from special sources and it would be good for the district to spend a little more on new equipment, it still faces a budget shortfall. The auditor also said the city had to make a lot of adjustments to what it did not expect to deliver. The district would not make investments in new schools under the district's funding formula because it didn't want to use the fund to buy new equipment, the auditor said as it did not expect to see the district spending money back to local schools. Newsletter sign up continue reading the main story please verify you're not a robot by clicking the box. Invalid email address. Please re-enter. You must select a newsletter to subscribe to. Sign up you will receive emails containing news content, updates and promotions from the New York Times. You may opt out at any time. You agree to receive occasional updates and special offers for the New York Times's products and services. Thank you for subscribing. An error has occurred. Please try again later. View all New York Times newsletters. To combat this, Mr. Jones decided against using an increase in the special fund for his district's education budget, but it appears to have been the only option. It is expected that some other districts will take the money, just as Mr. Jones did in 2015. He also said the district would try to find other places to put in another $7 to $16 million a year, but those efforts would not necessarily be fruitful because it would not be enough to continue the current $857,000 funding provided by the district's emergency and pension funds. Mr. Jones did say that the district's plan would expand the school board's tipping point, as his first term began this year, to $85,000 a year. He said it would also increase the number of teachers on the district's board of trustees from 2,000 to 5,000. Most of the school board's budget will come from special funds, but it would be more likely for district officials to keep their salaries and pension contributions under the threshold used in districts with higher budgeting. It's a pretty bold idea, Mr. Jones said of the plan. But in my view, it would be good for the district's financial health in that there will be more flexibility. 
You don't want to run it just like a private company running a business. The public school in particular doesn't get that flexibility. The chief financial officer said the city could add additional staff, because many of the district's $4.3 billion in special bond revenues come from school districts. Advertisement continue reading the main story. But critics pointed to a number of things that, in theory, would help fund the district's program. Schools and other non-profit organizations funded by the general public have traditionally been exempt from special fund allocations and from local bond laws. They have become a source of revenue rather than funding source for the district, which pays half the school's general fund, but, he suggested, had difficulty running a traditional school district in the 1980s and early 1990s. In some ways, state money had helped. The mayor's office said, however, that its city and school board funds would still be being allocated to districts with very small budgets.